compassionate to us, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So beginning at the, at the start, in verses 1 through 3, we see God's blessing on the righteous. And this is always an encouraging thought. How blessed is he who considers the helpless? Another translation of that would be poor or those who are destitute or those who are incapable of helping themselves. The one who gives consideration to those around them who are struggling. Now, we, we have to be careful here. The scripture has a great deal to say about caring for the poor, caring for the orphan, caring for the destitute, caring for those who are sick, caring for those who are frail and infirm, and the list goes on. If you are not cautious, you could make the argument that the sum of the Judeo-Christian faith is simply the social action of caring for people that have a hard time caring for themselves. And while it's very important to do that, that is not the sum of the Judeo-Christian faith. If you're equally incautious, you could say theologically, well, the sum of the Judeo-Christian faith is not about the care of those who can't care for themselves. So we just won't really concern ourselves with caring about those who can't care for themselves and ignore it and avoid it completely. That would also be wrong. The scripture makes it clear that a form of external righteousness is caring for the helpless. The scripture also makes it clear in other places that there are those who externally care for the helpless and they do so not for a righteous cause at all. Because you can put on a false righteousness and mimic true righteousness in your external actions without it truly being of the Lord. There are plenty of atheists and agnostics and pagans and followers of false religion who care deeply for the helpless and the poor. And it's certainly not because they're living out any sort of righteousness that comes from knowing the Lord rightly. And so I want to make it very clear on the front end of this, because if, you're, if, you, if we're not careful and if we don't lay that out, we could hear that and go, oh, well, I must be righteous because I do care for the helpless. And the care of the helpless is not what makes you righteous. The care of the helpless might demonstrate that you are righteous, might, but it doesn't make you righteous. And so we have to be very, very cautious in this. So... The psalmist David is beginning with a declaration about a righteous act from someone who's walking in covenant with the Lord and God's blessing on them. And in this case, it's care for the helpless. So how blessed is the one who considers the one who is helpless? The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive and he'll be called blessed on the earth and the other things that we saw in the first three verses. So what happens is, is there's a covenantal kindness that comes from the Lord. The Lord's kindness toward his people. This one who is considering the helpless. This one who is caring for the needy. This, is th this one who is caring for the one who is destitute. He is in covenant relationship with God. This righteousness that he has is flowing from him because of his relationship with the Lord. And as such, God will show this individual his kindness. So in this text, in the first three verses, what are some of the ways that God shows his kindness 
to his people, those that he has declared righteous. First, God will deliver you in the day of trouble. Now, again, a thing we have to be cautious about. I I won't get you to raise your hands, but I suspect a lot of hands would go up. How many of you are Christians? Hands would go up. How many of you have had days of trouble that you didn't feel delivered out of? Hands would still stay up. So is this false? Is what David telling us a lie? Of course not. Yes, sometimes we're delivered from temporal days of trouble. But the day of trouble is the day of the Lord. And if you are in Christ, friend, although it's an already not yet, you have already been delivered from a day that has not yet come. And there are those who will not be delivered on that day. This is the day of trouble that we are delivered from. Hear me this morning. There is no temporal promise of deliverance from trouble ultimately in this life. And anyone who preaches a gospel that says otherwise is lying to you. Is God kind sometimes to deliver us from temporal trouble? Yes. Are there many people who live their lives in relative ease? Yes. Are there people who are overwhelmingly blessed, who are in Christ, with temporal enjoyments that make life easier to handle? Yes. Is this promised to any of us? No. It's not. It's absolutely not promised to any of us. What is promised to us is that the great day of trouble we will be delivered from. That is one of the great kindnesses that God shows us. Next, how does God demonstrate his kindness on those he is blessed with righteousness? God will protect that person and keep them alive. Again, if we read this in a temporal way, we would deceive ourselves. There are plenty of Christians throughout the history of the church. We read about many of them for the great heroes of the faith who experienced a great day of trouble that cost them their lives and they were not kept alive by the Lord. They were allowed to be yielded over to death. We call them martyrs. Is this a false promise to those who have given their lives for the cause of Christ? Absolutely not. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. Protect him from what? From the great day of trouble. This is what John affectionately refers to as the second resurrection. The second life, if you will. Next, these people shall be called blessed upon the earth. They'll be called blessed by, by, by whom? Not their enemies. The rest of the psalm is about how their enemies will revile them, speak falsehood against them, bring all sorts of negativity toward them and about them, belittle them and bring them to shame. Who then will call them blessed? 
Friends, hear me this morning. The Lord Himself will call them blessed. And this is a far superior blessing than any that we could receive from our fellow man. When the Lord God, through Jesus Christ, calls us His own and calls us by His name and marks us out as uniquely and peculiarly His people, we are truly blessed. When He gives us His name, And He writes it on our hands and on our forehead. And when He clothes us with His righteousness and He invites us in to be seated at His banquet table and He allows us to sit with His his Son upon a throne of righteousness, judging the living and the dead, and crowns us with a crown of glory and of life, we have been declared blessed by God. And as such... One of the things that we are blessed with by God in this moment is that he does not give us over to the desire of our enemies. Friends, the enemy's desire is to make you feel small and insignificant and weak and frail And the beautiful thing about it is, is that if you rightly and truly understand your relationship with the Lord, you have come to grips with the fact that you are all of those things already. I know that's not where y'all thought I was going. The enemy does not have to convince you of this. You already know this. Because you have found your worth and your value and your life and your peace and your significance in Christ Jesus. The enemy wants to make you feel unworthy. And whenever the enemy attempts to do this to you, just agree with him. You're right, I am unworthy. But Christ is worthy, and I am in Christ. And finally, it says here in verse 3 that this person will be sustained on their sickbed. That God will restore them to health. Now, I just want to say from personal experience. And, and pastoral ministries has found me in people's rooms and hospital rooms and sick beds and all kinds of circumstances. There are times when people are prayed for who are sick and they come out well on the other side. And we thank God for it. We pause and we praise God. Look at the great work that God's done. Because we know it's God who makes alive and God who brings down to death. Kind of tweak that last one though. We forget sometimes that it's God who brings down to death. And there are plenty of times where plenty of sick people who walk with the Lord have been prayed for and prayed for and prayed for, and they die. They're not restored on their sickbed in this temporal life. So God's promises to us false? Has God lied to us? Heavens, no friends, listen to me. When those who are in Christ 
marked by him as righteous, blessed ones, fall ill upon a a bed of sickness and it leads to their death, they are more restored than they ever would have been in this life. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. So these blessings that God declares for His people transcend all of the negative realities that exist in our broken and fallen world. That's what makes them blessings. All of the worst that this world has to offer, even death itself, becomes a victory in the hands of God for His people. Friends, that's God's blessing on the righteous is that all of the effects of unrighteousness have been undone by the cross of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. So then what does the psalmist ask of God? Be gracious to me. If this is the display of God's grace to undo all of the wrong things, all of the upside down nature of this broken world, and that comes through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, what should be the thing that we ask God for? God, be gracious to me. If this is what your grace looks like, I want it. As for me. I love this. You just saw the psalmist talk about all these abundant blessings of grace towards the blessed and the righteous. Covenant people with God. And the psalmist makes a great admission, a great acknowledgement midway through the psalm. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Why? Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Friends, the true cry of the believer's heart, the true cry of the believer's heart is this. I acknowledge the glory and greatness and goodness of my God in Christ. And when my life does not reflect that greatness and glory and goodness, I Repent of my sin. It's that simple. It's that simple. I long for the grace of God to be upon me. And often, oh so very often, my life is not marked by one who walks in the grace of God. I am marked often, so very often, as one who longs to to fulfill the desires of their own heart with empty idolatry, love of self, and love of the things of this broken world. So God, be gracious to me, heal my soul, because I have sinned against you. Be gracious to me. I want to be one who's marked out as blessed, who receives this kindness from you. And in my sin, I'm creating a separation between you and me in a relational sense. 
You are holy and I am not and I'm living in my unholiness and I need your grace to be upon me. Friends, that is not just the salvation prayer. That is the prayer of every believing person of every time, of every moment that they rebel against God. Repentance is not a one and done. Repentance is a lifelong practice of the true believer. What are the consequences in the believer's life when they yield themselves to sin and they stand against the things of this gracious and compassionate God? Notice what David lists out here, beginning in verse 5, of the consequences that occur. First, my enemy speaks evil against me. And what is this evil that his enemy speaks? Look at this. This is, this is really intense. My enemy speaks evil against me. And this is the evil that he speaks. When will he, the one who's supposed to be righteous but is living in his sin, when will he die and his name perish? Those who stand against righteousness in this life do not want the the name and the way and the perspective of the righteous to live on. Why? Because the name and the way of the righteous is a reflection of the glory of Christ. Any right good thing that I do is an outworking of the work of Christ in my life and it reflects who He is and brings glory to His name and gives announcement to the gospel to a lost and dying world. And as such, those who are enemies of righteousness desire for any righteousness that flows from my life or your life to be squelched and shut down. When will He die and His name perish from the earth? They're longing for God's judgment to fall on the believer who's living in their sin. God, just go ahead and mark him off. Clearly, he's not going to reflect your glory the way that he should. He's a hypocrite. He keeps talking all this Jesus stuff and his life doesn't measure up. Just go ahead and take him out. When truly and secretly the longing of the evil one is for the name of Christ to be made little of and not your name to be made little of. Next, notice the consequences. These wicked speak falsehood. And notice he doesn't speak falsehood about the righteous. He speaks falsehood to the righteous. See what it says here in verse 6. It says, and when he comes to see me. By the way, know this, friend. The the wicked and the enemies of the gospel, they will come to see you. Is a student greater than his master? Let's think about the story of the life of Jesus. He gets baptized, marking the beginning of his public ministry. What's the very next thing that happens? The Spirit leads him out into the wilderness, and who comes to see him? Oh, come on, pop quiz. Who comes to see him? Satan. Doesn't get any more of an enemy than that, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. Very first thing. Baptized. This is my son, spirit like a dove, 
Spirit says, hey, hey, come with me. We're going to the desert. Don't eat anything for 40 days. Oh, Satan shows up. Hey, me, you want some bread? The wicked, the enemy, the unrighteous, they will come to see you. And when they come to see you, they will do with you exactly what Satan did with Jesus. They will speak falsehood to you. That's what they'll do. What, what did the serpent do in the garden? <laughs> did God really say? Speaking of falsehood. Lying. Deception. And if your heart is already bent to a place of not rightly walking with God, remember, he's repenting of his sin. He's in a place where he's not walking rightly with God. Your spiritual ears are more open to hearing lies as if they are truth. That is why the enemy comes in this moment to speak falsehood to you. It's because your heart has become open to that which is not true. It's a great design. And this is a consequence of us walking away from the Lord. Third, this enemy not only speaks falsehood to us, but he actually speaks this falsehood on our behalf and in our presence to the public itself. Notice here, after it says, he says, he comes to me and he speaks falsehood. His heart, middle of verse 6, gathers wickedness to itself. And when he goes outside, he tells it. Fourth, he devises ways to hurt you, the wicked one does. Usually it's in the field, in the realm of reputation. Because when we have opened ourselves to sin, when we have rebelled against the things of God, when we have stepped away from God's will for us on our behalf, we have elevated something else, whatever it is, to the place that God should have in our lives. That's what's happened. We have embraced the two-headed dragon of pride and unbelief. I don't believe that God's way is the best way. That's our unbelief. In our pride, I think that my way is a better way than God's way. And so what happens? There's this devising of hurt. What could hurt you the most? Well, friends, a lot of times it's not the negative hurt like we think. It's not people getting sick. It's not people uh, having calamity or disaster or struggle. No, the enemy is smarter than that. The enemy knows better than that. More times than not, the real hurt that comes our way from the enemy is they make us enjoy the life that we are experiencing without the Lord. What does it say in the New Testament of Satan? That often he poses as an angel of light. Hey, if, what was the first temptation? Hey, you know what? I think you can get along just fine without this God fellow. In fact, things will probably be better off for you. You'll probably enjoy life a whole lot more. You get to do more of the things that you always wanted to do, but were told you couldn't. You can be a whole lot more than what you are right now. Why don't we give it a try? And you begin to find pleasure in this life apart from the divine. And friends, that actually is nothing but pain at the end. 
And then notice this last one, this, this consequence. Verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We don't have time for it, but there's a lot of parallels there to the dipping of the bread with Judas. Good connection to make. But what happens when our minds and our hearts and our lives are clouded by sin and we're in a state of unrepentance and we've stepped away from the gracious kindness and protection of God and pursued things on our own is that we open ourselves up to friendships that do not cultivate the glory of Christ in our lives. The scripture has a lot to say about who our closest companions are. Should you be friendly and have friendships with lost people? Of course you should. There's no way to cultivate the gospel into people's lives if you don't have a relationship with them. But your closest friends, your great confidants, those who you have a deep, meaningful relationship with should not be the lost. They shouldn't be. You should not entrust the greatest levels of vulnerability and transparency that you have with those who do not have a heart for Christ. Because your close friend in a moment of your weakness, because they do not share the worldview of the glory of Jesus Christ, will turn on you. And usually it's as the voice of the enemy drawing you further away from Jesus. So, what does the psalmist ask in this desire for God to be gracious to him? Because he repeats it here in verse 10. Classic Hebrew parallelism in poetry. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and do what? Raise me up. And then I want to throw out that there's a very interesting reason why he wants to be raised up. And it creates a lot of complicated tension that I'm not going to resolve for us this morning. That I might repay them. Now, you could take that as aggressive vindictiveness. You you could take it that way. That word can mean that in the Hebrew. I'm going to get them. Problem with taking it that way is you would have absolutely zero other scriptures to support doing it like that. (laughs) Like none. And by the way, there's really no standalone scriptures in the Bible where it's like, hey, everything else in the Bible says this, but that one passage. So I'm going to go with it. No, that's not how that works. This word also means to bring something to an end or to bring something to its fulfillment, bring something to its Conclusion or to have restitution made where that which is broken and wrong is now made right. And if you take this language to be that way, Lord, raise me up. Why? That I might bring them their actions, their desires, their perspective to an end. That restitution of their wrongdoing might be made that they might have to actually answer for their sins or have their sins come to their end and bring about right fulfillment. One of two things could be happening there. Lord, Raise me up and help me 
through your work, through your deliverance of me, through the demonstration of the grace that you've given me in my life to be potentially used by you to an end of their sin as possible evangelism interpretation. Or, same coin, just the other side of it, allow my voice to return to such that if you do not deliver them, I am part of what brings about their judgment one day. Because friends, part of the judgment we have from other passages in Scripture is that there will have been repeated, for many people, repeated pronouncements of the gospel. No one will stand before God completely ignorant and innocent. Paul says of those who have not heard the gospel, creation itself was declaring the glory of God. And for those who did hear the gospel, they have the prophetic mouthpiece of those who are witnesses for Christ. And here David is saying potentially one of two things. Let me be used by you for your drawing them into your kingdom, a final end to their sin. Or let me be a mouthpiece of the judgment when one day in that great terrible day that you're delivering me from, I'm part of the reason why they're judged. David's not calling for us to be vindictive. And then we get to God's pleasure revisited. By this, verse 11, I know that you are pleased with me. How? How does he know that that God's pleased with him? Because my enemy doesn't celebrate over me. Friends, this is the beautiful thing. This is the beautiful thing. Our enemy, both the enemy within, the old man in me that was in Adam, and the enemy of the gospel without, the lowercase g god of this world, powers and principalities of the air. Neither one of them gets to stand in celebration over my life. Because my life, through the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the completed work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, I have been placed into the right hand of God and no one can snatch me from it. When you consider Paul's language in the book of Ephesians of the armor of God, Those things that protect us from the enemy are all markers of the character and work of Jesus Christ himself in his crucifixion and resurrection on our behalf. I have done nothing to deliver myself from my enemies. Christ has done everything. Everything to preserve me from the power of my enemies. And my enemies cannot celebrate over my life because my life is not my own. It belongs to Christ Jesus. And this is how I know that God is pleased with me. Not because of anything that I have done, but because he is well pleased with his son who has done everything on my behalf. And that leads the psalmist David to declare in verse 12 that God upholds him in, notice what he says, he says, my integrity. 
You uphold me in my integrity. Is David bragging here? Is he being boastful? No. Friends, when we have this sort of a transformative relationship with Jesus Christ, when He has delivered us from our sins and He has made us a new creation, He's made us a new creature, He's clothed us with His righteousness, He's seated us upon a throne, crowned us with glory, and all the other stuff that we talked about earlier in the sermon. When these things are true of us and this is what has happened to us, one of the gifts that He gives to us is a gift of integrity because it's part of righteousness. And what is the integrity of the believer? What does that look like? How does it manifest itself? The integrity of the believer is the constant admission that there is no good thing in me that has delivered me from my sin, but there is all righteousness in Christ Jesus that has set me free. And He, as a gracious gift to me, has given me His righteousness to live in. I am righteous and I am full of integrity and I am declared not guilty because all those things are true in me of myself. No, but because Christ has transformed me and made those things true of me. When God sees me, the father sees me. He does not see the dead wretch that was in Adam. He sees the living one who is in his son. And so when David declares that his integrity has caused God to uphold him, it's a declaration of the integrity that's been given to him as a gift from God. How so? How do we know this? Because of the second part of that verse. You set me forever in your presence. That's beautiful. You've set me in your presence forever. You want to know how long forever is? Forever. There's no like fun, cool thing to do with the translation here. Forever. There will not ever be a time in David's life where he is not securely set in the saving presence of his God. Now, I want you to filter David's life for a moment. When David had his event with Bathsheba, and the plotting of the murder of her husband, and the accomplishment of such a wretched task. Why was he so broken? Why did he write Psalm 51? Why was he so overwhelmed by the nature of that sin? Because he is forever in the presence of his God. And one who's been drawn to your eternal presence should not behave this way. And against you and you only have I sinned. When he numbered the people against the will of God and against the recommendation of the high priest. And it brought calamity upon the entire nation of Israel. And he wept and he was broken and he wrote a variety of psalms about it. Confessing his sin, weeping over his sin. Why would he respond this way? Because he was forever in the presence of his God. God, look how gracious you've been to me and look how I have responded to that grace. Forgive me. And what does that cause us to do? When we come to realize 
that that is how our lives are, that we are forever in the presence of God and that he will not let us go. As the New Testament writers say, even when we are faithless, he is still faithful because our God will never leave us nor forsake us. When we come to the understanding of this sort of relationship with our God, it does not lead us to more sinning, but instead it leads us to more repenting and it causes us to declare with great worshipful lips what David says here in verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Because friends, Jesus Christ is gracious to us. Philip, I, I, don't, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to worship. I don't know how to grow in greater love with Christ. Step one. Understand your wretched condition in your sin. Like David did. Like David did. Step two. Understand that the Lord God through Christ Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit is gracious to you. Say, so, well, Philip, that, that, that's not doing it for me. If you understand what it means for God to be gracious to you, a sinner, it will always do it for you. God has two responses to sinners and two responses only to sinners. The natural, common, logical response of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, sovereign, just God to sin and unholiness is wrath. And however you take God's wrath, it's bad. You don't want that. There's nothing to compare to it. God does not look at his people, even though they sin, through the lens of wrath. Because he's gracious to them. And in spite of our sinful condition, he looks at us and he sees his own son, Jesus, and loves us with the same love that he loves him. That causes us to know how to pray and how to worship and how to love God and how to hate sin. Because God has been gracious to us. So much so as we're celebrating our Advent season. That the second person of the Trinity. The eternal son of God. Stepped down out of glory. And veiled himself in human flesh. The all powerful almighty God. Becoming a helpless child. In the form of humans that he had originally created in his image. Having to be cared for and loved and fed and taken care of by earthly parents. So that he could grow up 
to die under the wrath of God so that you would not. Jesus Christ is the gracious one. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much for the grace that you have manifested toward us in Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we neglect so great a grace and run back to our sin. When we make an idol of ourselves. When we belittle the glorious name of Christ through our longing of the pleasures of this world. Father, as David prayed here, O oh Lord, be gracious to us. Heal our souls, for we have sinned against you. And Father, call to mind your goodness toward us. Your grace toward us. Your compassion and, and patience Father, help our hearts and minds to be overwhelmed with the glory of your Son, Jesus. Cause us to love him and his name and his glory above any of the longings and temptations of this temporal age. And remind us constantly day by day, that you have set us in your presence forever. Father God, may your name be blessed from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, I will give you a moment. There are some elements at the front and the back if you do not have those. I'll give you a moment to get what it is that you need and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. This morning, we have the opportunity in sharing in the Lord's table together. I would invite you to take the bread. Jesus made a declaration. He said, this is my body. It's a picture of our sin being placed on him. It's a picture of us consuming him as spiritual food. It's a picture of transfer. The grain has to fall and it has to die so that those who consume it might have life. 
And it's a remarkable picture of what Christ has done for us spiritually. Our, our dead, dying souls exchanged for his life through his death. Let's take and eat all of it. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the great exchange that has been made. His life for ours. Our sin for his righteousness. His perfect fulfillment of your will for our waywardness. The removal of wrath in exchange for being in your presence forever. To him be the glory. Amen.